You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. We are in a series on Luke at the moment, and we find ourselves in Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to get into uh, a glimpse of women and the church and women and leadership in the church and all kinds of glimpses of women within the church. Now, this has often been a complicated conversation for people because there's some problematic passages in the Bible that seem a bit sexist and seem to be saying some very intense things towards women like they shouldn't speak and things like that. But when you look at the whole glimpse of the New Testament, that's not what you see at all. And it's often, you know, the the verses that we often focus on tend to be the ones that are like very like statement oriented. But when you stop and you focus on the narrative oriented statements or the narrative oriented passages, you see that women led in the church that the church was so vibrant because women brought the whole thing together. And so I like to hit on a lot of passages that are often skipped because they're often like at the ends and beginnings of letters. Like, hey, say hi to this person who does this thing. You know, that stuff that you kind of tune out in. You often tune out when you're reading your Bibles, you tune out during genealogies and you tune out when Paul's talking to a bunch of people with Greek names that you've never heard of. It's the same kind of genealogy type thing. So we're going to we're going to take a look today, and our main passage is Luke 8, 1 through 3, where we find three women synced up with Jesus. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus, out there in ministry. And the twelve were with him. We're used to that. Jesus and the twelve disciples, we hear that all the time. The twelve were with him. But Luke, Luke sometimes has a focus on women And likes to bring them to the forefront of his gospel. The twelve were with him. And also some women. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chuzza, Herod's household manager. And Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Did you ever notice that Jesus' ministry was often financed by women with money? If you ever wondered, like, how he got around, because it's not like you'd probably make a ton of money just walking the street as a vagabond preaching on corners. It was women who were supporting his ministry, but it was also women who went with him. And I'm sad that it took me so long to notice that. There was a movie that came out a few years back. I think it was called Mary. Um, it, it's about Mary Magdalene. It's a Hollywood movie, you know, scripturally, I don't know how close it was. Uh, it's kind of weird in some regards. Whenever Jesus heals people, it's like he becomes sick and he's like, oh, I'm drained of my energy. Like it, it had a kind of a weird Hollywood focus in it. But what's really cool about it is you had Jesus, the 12 disciples, and then Mary Magdalene was wherever he was. And that's kind of what this passage has you feeling like. That Mary... And other female disciples were with Jesus. And that was countercultural. At that time, uh, women were not often educated. And yet, here she is sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Rabbis did not typically, if ever, have female disciples. But Jesus did. 
And we're usually focused on the 12, but there are other passages that tell us that Jesus had many more disciples than that. There's passages that tell us he had 72 disciples. There are passages where he loses a bunch of disciples when he's preaching things that they don't like to hear. And everywhere that Jesus goes, he's building up new disciples. So yeah, there's the core 12, but then there's also the women who go with him. That probably sounded scandalous at that time, which is probably why uh, it doesn't show up all the time. But Luke, despite the scandal, thought it was important enough to state. So Luke points out Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. These are all people that did ministry with Jesus and, and funded the ministry that he was doing. Now, when we go throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see women all over the place. Mary. Paul's writing a letter to the Romans, and he says, Greet Mary. Mary has worked hard for the Roman church. Part of their thriving has been in her servanthood to the Roman church. Paul also talks about Rufus's mother. She doesn't have a name, I guess. Just Rufus's mom. Uh, but Paul talks about how, like, greet Rufus and greet his mom because she has been a mom to me as well. And you see that sometimes in the New Testament where Christians truly become family to one another. That Paul, perhaps ostracized by his own mother, who has heard about the, the ways in which Paul's converted to Judaism or to Christianity, um, Paul finds himself finding solitude in someone else's mother who has taken him in. The early church was family, so much so to the point that, that they started to bring themselves onto the same level, that in Christ there is no more Jew and Gentile. In Christ there is no male and female. There's no more social ladders to climb. There's no slave and free. In Christ we are all the same and we are family. In fact, they embraced this idea of family so much that they did something that makes us feel super awkward. It was a tradition called the holy kiss. You ever hear of the holy kiss before? In the early church, Paul actually writes about the holy kiss like six times throughout the New Testament. Greet each other with a holy kiss. This was a kiss that seems to be like straight on the lips, treating each other as family because that's what people did at the time. If you were family, you kissed right on the lips within Jewish culture. And they just translated that right into the Bible. You can imagine how awkward this probably would be. And you can also guess that that's why it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> All it took was creepy Uncle Bob somewhere <laughs> who was just enjoying the holy kiss a little too much. Like, okay, this thing's going to have to go. But that was how family treated one another. And that's part of the reason that the early church kind of was thought to be scandalous. They get together and they're cannibals. They eat some guy's body and drink his blood and then they kiss one another what is up with these people they weren't doing themselves a lot of favors but that was the way in which they embraced uh, one another because they became family they took care of one another so when you see rufus's mom becoming paul's mom that's family paul is embraced and cared for and loved by the women in the church Judea and Sincti labored with Paul in the gospel. Side by side, Paul comes to, to talk about them and support them. In one of the letters, he talks about how these women were, were doing the gospel with him. They're on mission work with him. Some of these women ended up in jail with Paul while they were doing mission work with him. 
I, going to jail for the gospel, I mean, that's church leadership to me, I'll tell you that. Labored with Paul in the gospel, you've got Tryphania and Tryphosa, who Paul calls workers in the Lord, who are also alongside Paul doing ministry. You've got Phoebe. Phoebe was a deaconess or a deacon in the church. Though when I used that word in a paper in class last semester, my professor berated me for it and said a better term would be minister. She, she was a minister in the church. And I, I don't think deacon is a degrading term. So I, I think deacon meant something different to her than it meant to me. But she wanted to bring Phoebe up even more. She's not just a deacon. She's a minister. It's almost something like pastoral about that. She's in the church, she's serving, and she's serving in leadership. We've got uh, Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul goes and, and uh, meets these two Jews, they're married, named Priscilla and Aquila. He meets them in Italy, and they join Paul, and they just go on mission trip with him. They hear the gospel, they join Paul, and soon they're leaving for Syria with Paul. They hop on a boat together, and they go out to do ministry. And Priscilla and Aquila, what's interesting, is they're mentioned six times in the New Testament, and Priscilla's name comes up four times as the first. So rather than Aquila and Priscilla, it's Priscilla and Aquila, which scholars just like to point that out. It's odd in that culture at that time that the woman's mentioned first, which makes us just feel like, Priscilla was probably doing more of the heavy work and heavy ministry than Aquila was. And in fact, Paul was so close to Priscilla that he had a nickname for her, Prisca, which was often the nickname for Priscilla in that time. Uh, these two must have been very smart because um, Apollos, who was um, another kind of rising star within the old Christian church, uh, Apollos was, was like a, a biblical scholar to the same kind of level perhaps as Paul. To the same point that Christians started fighting about who they learned from. Oh, you learned from Paul? Well, I learned from Apollos. Oh, well, let me tell you something about Apollos. You know, like, it's like they were creating these denominations. Let me tell you who's the better scholar that we study under. But Apollos, you want to know where he learned the gospel from? This Bible scholar? He learned it from Priscilla and Aquila. They took him aside. They heard him preaching, and he was starting to catch on to the gospel. They're like, hey, there's a few blanks he still needs to fill in. Come here, Apollos. Let us fill it in for you. Priscilla's an evangelist. And so when you're saying, like, oh, you learned from Paul. Well, I learned from Apollos. Well, guess who Apollos will learn from? Priscilla. It's an interesting story to really think about. And then there's Junia. Junia is an apostle in the church. And when it comes to uh, leadership in the church, there is nothing higher than apostle. That's all the way at the top. That's all the way at the top. Now, you haven't heard much about Junia because when we translate Bibles into English, there are so many people doing the translating that are nervous about women in ministry that they translate it incorrectly. So some of your translations say Junius instead of Junia, which is super messed up because in ancient culture, there has never been anyone who has found the existing name Junius, at least to within the last decade or so. We have not heard of any reports of this name. We literally fabricated a name so that Junia would not be known as an apostle within the church. 
When you are reading your Bible, there are times when the translators are trying to make decisions for you. And that's why it's helpful to pay attention to the other work around that, and occasionally to look into other translations as well. The ESV, which I use all the time, one of the big complaints with them is that they do things like that from time to time um, that is not helpful to understanding women's place in the church. And I agree with that. Uh, that's one of my critiques on the ESV, even though that's the translation I often use. So you gotta, you gotta pay attention to what your Bible translations have to say. There's prophetesses in the early church. Philip the Evangelist has four unmarried daughters, and they, um, they prophesy. It doesn't, I, I don't remember if it actually says like they're prophetesses, but they do prophesy, and therefore it leads us to believe that they operated in the role of prophet. And you know, if you're a prophet, you have to speak. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> so when you come across these other verses that seem to say like women should keep silent in the church, Obviously not, because if that's the case, you can't speak. There's some other kind of cultural thing going on there that we have to stand back and say, we need a better understanding of these more problematic passages. Because Paul, who's the one that we usually say is being sexist and writing all of these weird things, Paul encountered most of the women that are up on the screen. Most of the women in ministry we know about come from Paul's letters. And that should stop and perk our ears just a little bit. There also seems to be a widow ministry, and I just noticed this over the last few weeks or so. There's a spot in 1 Timothy 5 where Paul is writing to Timothy, and he encourages him, all right, if you're going to enroll some widows, here's some of the qualities that you should be looking for in the widows. They should um, have proper behavior. They should have A, B, C, D, and he just goes down a list. Now, a lot of us, when we read that passage, we remember in Acts that there were widows who needed food. And so we're thinking that they're enrolling to receive food because they are some of the poor among the church. But that doesn't really make sense. Like we don't enroll people to give them food here at 1208. The church is not like, well, I can only give you food if I you know, run you through a whole system. We do have to take some information for the people who give us the food, but like enrolling is kind of a weird, like the church is charity. We, we, give food, things like that. There's another passage in the Bible where Paul is talking about pastors and that pastors should meet all of these criteria, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, if they're going to be pastors. The way he writes about widows sounds the same. If a widow is going to enroll in the church, they should meet the criteria of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So is it possible that what Paul is talking about here is that there was a ministry of widows, be it Maybe something like a nunnery or um, widows that came together to create a ministry of widows, like-minded people who worked together, committed to one another, took care of people in the church, took care of the widows in the church. Whatever the case may be, the way Paul writes does kind of feel like he's laying out criteria for the women that are going to be serving in the church. And he also talks about um, like younger widows, he like puts forth like maybe they shouldn't because they're probably going to want to get married again if they have been widowed that early. So Paul's trying to discern like this must be like a, a big commitment to make. He doesn't want some people to end up in it if they're not ready to end up in it. So these are just some glimpses that I want to give you of women in the church throughout the Bible. And the reason that I love to give these glimpses is because as a free Methodist church, we 
preach women in ministry. That is something that we have believed for a long, long time. But one of the things that we often do is we just kind of flat out say it in churches, yeah, women should be in ministry, and we never explain why, which leads a lot of people on the other end to think, well, I feel like the Bible says women shouldn't be in ministry, but apparently we can just say, yeah, they can, and never explain anything. So what else in the Bible can we do that to? Can we just explain away everything just by saying, eh, we don't feel that way? No, we do hard research, we pay close attention, and we start to bring it all together. And when we do that, we realize that Jesus elevated women. Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene is the very first, really, if you think about it, the very first apostle. Apostle means sent out one. Mary Magdalene is the first one to see the resurrection. Not a man, not the 12 disciples. You know where the 12 disciples are when Jesus is resurrected? They're locked in a room hiding because they're afraid that they're going to get killed. But Mary Magdalene is out in the open in the light of day. She sees Jesus first, and before Jesus sends the disciples out as apostles, he sends Mary as an apostle to the apostles to tell them the good news of the resurrection. Now, I don't think Jesus did that unintentionally. I think that was intentional. He was elevating women. He did ministry with women. And now when you start to imagine Jesus with the 12 disciples, you should start thinking of Mary Magdalene being right there, Susanna being alongside as well. And who knows what other women served alongside him. Who knows what other married couples like Priscilla and Aquila did ministry together, did evangelism together. The list in the New Testament is quite extensive. And I think if we were still living in that time, we would look around us and we would see that the church was just breaking all of these cultural and social rules because they had come together as one unit. They understood they all had the same Holy Spirit that was elevating them to the same level. And they served as family and they loved one another. It's because of how uh, long ago it was that we get caught up in the more problematic passages and we hone in on those instead of telling the whole story. So when we look at Luke, who in one of our most recent messages elevated this woman who is uh, likely going to be caught up in a story of scandal as she comes and washes, washes Jesus' feet, this is a story that follows it. Luke again, returning to women. Jesus did ministry with them. And so, of course, we do too because we follow Jesus. Jesus, we come before you right now and we recognize that we have all um, grown up in different churches, different cultures, and different situations where it's difficult um, to break of our traditions. We've been taught one way, we've never seen another side, and for some people this is brand new. And I pray that you would uh, um, just continue to bring them through that story. Um, help us too with those difficult passages. Because we want to honor your Bible, and it can throw us off when we see uh, uh, that there's a disconnect between the problematic passages and the narratives that clearly show something else. So teach us, grow us, bring us closer to you, and help us continue to elevate women. And we repent of the times where we haven't done that. May we continue to grow in that. May we continue to um, come before you and kneel and say sorry. 
God, I think of just preaching this message uh, just like this uh, a month ago and just one woman coming up and saying that was the most healing message I have heard in a long, 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 long time. God, there are many who have been pained. I know pastors, female pastors in ministry who continue, even though they're in ministry, to, to fight this feeling that maybe they're not supposed to be. Would you, would you heal them of that? We come to you, Abba. You are our Father. You are the one who speaks identity over us, and we need to be obedient to you. So teach us to do that and help us with the struggle when we're lost in the midst of understanding your scriptures better. I feel you speaking even to my own heart in a different way through these words. So help us all with that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to go deeper into this conversation, I don't fully know how to say his name, but Ninja Gupta. Ninja, does anybody know who I'm talking about? All right. Is that, yeah. Do you know how to say his name? I said it right. I've never said it out loud till this moment. All right. You're at least 90% of the way. Ninja Gupta. Thank you. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. Thank you, Hope. Um, he just put out a book recently. I read it last week, and I've already forgot the title. But it's about women in ministry, women in the church. It has a lot of the stories I just shared with you. If you really want a condensed version, I've written a chapter on this conversation in a book. You can have that chapter. I'll give you a PDF. But if you want to do a, a, a deep dive that is written for everyone, he's a Bible scholar, but this book is for everyone. It's not written with a bunch of heady language. It is well worth your time, well worth the read, and offers a lot of great thoughts on some of those problematic passages toward the end of the book as well.